Good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming. And uh, my extended family wishes you and your family a, a blessed and, and happy Thanksgiving. It's good to see all of you here. See my old friend Al Gublet sitting back there. Uh, Al's very faithful in attendance at church. He comes once a year on Thanksgiving, rain or shine. <laughs> now I call him old Al because he is um, older than me. Now, of course, uh, Betty is about 20 years younger than Al. Or, or, or at least she looks it, I, I think. She, uh, but Al aged prematurely. I don't know whether you all you know it or not, but Al fought in... In the, in the big war. And that civil war was no picnic. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> it, wouldn't be, <clears throat> it wouldn't be the same here without having now. It would be kind of like having Thanksgiving dinner without the turkey. <clears throat> but, and all I mean by that is he adds a lot to this meeting. I don't know how he puts up with this, but he keeps coming back. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> well, you have heard me tell and retell the story of the <clears throat> pilgrims crossing the Atlantic and of that killing winter that took the lives of half the group that came over on the Mayflower. It's a great adventure story that is worth repeating. It's really more exciting than any novel you could write. Uh, and before we start, I, I want to... Uh, read Psalm 100, which was, which was the pilgrims' favorite psalm, the one that they liked to sing uh, best of all. A short psalm, a psalm for giving thanks. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is good. It is he who has made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. How true that is. <clears throat> this morning I'm going to take a, a bit of a different uh, tack. Well, there's another announcement I need to make. Um, I'm still trying to get rid of this book. Uh, <laughs> we brought another box in. <laughs> uh, they're yours for the asking. Take an armful of them if you want to send some to friends or inflict some on enemies or whatever you want to do with them. Uh, it's a matter of cl uh, cleaning out the basement from my part. <laughs> so, that, uh, Jamie, where'd you put the box, son? Behind the glass. Behind the glass. Okay, so if you don't have this and would like one or like more, take as many as you want. <clears throat> Instead of telling the old story, I want to uh, <clears throat> share with you some of the feelings and religious motives and small miracles that continuously took place during those first formative years uh, in Plymouth Colony, <clears throat> or Plymouth Plantation, excuse me, <clears throat> or Plymouth Plantation, as Governor William Bradford styled his famous first-person history. Governor uh, Bradford was governor of Plymouth Colony for nearly all of the first 35 years, and one of those rare individuals who lived the history that he wrote about. <clears throat> Some of you will recall when I spoke at the Family Bible Hour here a couple of uh, weeks ago 
on, on prophecy. I, I made the obvious point that to understand prophecy, you have to begin uh, with the Jews. And uh, I read that startling statement made by Moses to the children of Israel, found in Deuteronomy 14.2. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured procession. Moses went on to say that God didn't uh, choose the Jews because they were a great nation with a lot of talent. He said, in fact, you're one of the smallest. But he chose you because of the promise that he had made to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God told Abraham, you will recall, I have blessed you and you will be a blessing to all the nations, all the peoples of the earth. Now, how would you feel this morning if when you turn back to Deuteronomy 14.2, it read like this. Out of all the nations of the earth, the Lord has chosen the United States of America to be his treasured possession. That would kind of hit you rather strongly, wouldn't it? Um, make you walk a, a lot taller and, and uh, feel a lot better about your country, no doubt. What an, what an honor, what a precious privilege to be chosen by God. Out of all the nations on the earth, to be called his people. Now, on an individual level, that is the spiritual heritage of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are his chosen people. It was through Abraham's seed, the Lord Jesus, that all the peoples of the earth have been blessed. God's plan of salvation has always included all the people of all times. It was never to be confined just to the Jews. They were called to be the messengers or the instruments or the conduits of the message that God loved, that God loves us. Unfortunately, they failed in their calling and even rejected their Messiah, uh, through whom the Abrahamic promise would reach its zenith. And they paid an awful price for their disobedience. But that's getting ahead of the story. We, we often sing, God bless America, <clears throat> when we really should sing, God has blessed America. But is it possible that God entered into a covenant relationship with the pilgrim Puritan forefathers the same way he did with the children of Israel? Hold on to that thought just a minute as we make a historical digression here. <clears throat> the pilgrims were really a radical left wing of the Puritan movement, uh, they were called separatists. The Puritans tried to purify the church from, from within. The pilgrims were separatists. The Puritans wanted to reform the established church of England. The pilgrim position was, no, the established church is rotten to the core. It's too corrupt to be reformed. We need to come out from among them and be separate. Hence the word separatist. Furthermore, the pilgrims never called themselves pilgrims. The word was used by Governor Bradford in his um, account as he described how the pilgrims felt as they stood on the deck of the Mayflower looking back at the red tile roofs and the, and the big great windmills with, windmills with their sails in, in, in Holland and as they headed out into, and out into the ocean. And as their, that country receded in the distance, he wrote, they knew they were pilgrims and looked not much on those things, 
but lifted up their eyes to the heavens, their dearest country, and quieted their spirit. But the name was only first applied to them in any kind of a popular sense in 1793. That's 170 years after they landed. Now, the interesting thing about Bradford's history is that his manuscript, uh, which incidentally, for some reason, never once mentions the word Mayflower. He just refers to it as the ship. Uh, that manuscript was handed down from uh, father to son in generations, but they seemingly had placed little value on it. Um, and it ended up in the library of the renowned Old South Church in Boston, where it remained until the American Revolution. And the British used that church as a riding rink and a stable for horses during the American Revolution. And when, they, when the Redcoats evacuated Boston, uh, Governor Bradford's history of Plymouth Colony and several other documents disappeared, feared to be lost forever. But in 1855, now think, this is 1855. He was writing in 1630. But in 1855, the manuscript was found, and this would have made the pilgrims have turned over in their grave because it was found in the library of an Episcopal seat of the bishops of London, and they hated the Church of England. Uh, but that was where it was found, and the British didn't want to get, turn it, give it back. Um, but they did permit a transcript to be made, and it was published in Boston in 1856. And that transformed the pilgrim story which largely had been myth and legend before that, into actual history. So uh, uh, finally in 1896, that's only 100 years ago, in 1896, British church authorities agreed to return the original <coughs> manuscript to Boston, where it is now kept in a glass case in the State House. So the real, real pilgrim history is comparatively new, although it's based on a manuscript that was written in the 1630s. Now, somewhere back in the midst of time, we were addressing the question, uh, <clears throat> did God enter into a covenant relationship with our founding fathers in the same way he did with the patriarchs of, of Israel? The answer is absolutely not. Uh, Israel is the chosen people of God and, as a nation, and no other people can make that claim. But some of the Pilgrim and Puritan fathers believed that they had entered into a covenant with God. And we have to still make another historical correction. The people we now call Puritans gave up on their views trying to purify the Church of England and adopted the Separatist doctrine shortly after they landed here. So, uh, strictly speaking, the Puritans stopped being Puritans. Uh, and although we still refer to them as pilgrims, they, they had become Separatists and, and, had, and had embraced the, the Separatist doctrine. So that's another. But labels have a tendency to stick, and I'm going to keep referring to them by that name. The pilgrims saw many analogies between themselves and the children of Israel, God's chosen people. King James was likened unto Pharaoh. Crossing the Atlantic was like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, and America was the promised land. Uh, are you aware that the Jews still call, uh, call America the, the golden land because of what America has uh, done for the Jews? The pilgrims' beloved pastor, John Robinson, however, went beyond the exodus to the rebuilding of the temple in his perception of the pilgrims' mission. He believed God was calling them to a new Jerusalem to build the temple anew. He wrote to them, Now as the people of God in old time were called out of Babylon civil, the place of their bodily bondage, 
and were to come to Jerusalem, there to build the Lord's temple or tabernacle, so are the people of God now, meaning the pilgrims, to go out of Babylon spiritual to Jerusalem, to America, and to build themselves as lively stones into a spiritual house or temple for the Lord to dwell in. The good pastor said they were falling in the steps of another chosen people for, quote, we are the sons and daughters of Abraham by faith. Pastor Robinson did not make the journey to America, but stayed behind to shepherd the main body of the flock. Only a third of the 600-plus congregation in Leiden, Holland, would come to uh, uh, America, and even that number was further reduced when the smaller ship Speedwell, which was supposed to come along with the uh, Mayflower, uh, proved unseaworthy and sprung a leak and had to turn back. What many would have called a stroke of bad luck when this second ship had to turn back, Bradford saw the hand of the Lord in it. And thus, like Gideon's army, this small number was divided or further reduced, as if the Lord, by this work of his providence, thought these few too many for the great work he had to do. The pilgrims were saturated with the scriptures and continually used biblical imagery to describe their mission. They believed they had been called by God to accomplish a divine mission, what an outsider could very well call a mission impossible. Now, all of those involved in the great adventure uh, all of those did not think going to America was a good idea. In fact, one, Robert Cushman, who was a passenger on the Speedwell and who chose to stay in England rather than transferring to the Mayflower and make the trip, wrote to a friend, if we ever establish a, a, a colony, God works a miracle. And he turned out to be a better prophet than he, than he himself would have thought. God worked several miracles, I believe, on behalf of the pilgrims that permitted them to survive despite the terrible ordeals they had to undergo. Before the pilgrims left Holland, Pastor Robinson declared a day of fasting and prayer to prepare them spiritually for the long journey. At the end of the day, they ended their fast with a farewell feast of goose and pudding and wine and singing their favorite psalms from the psalm book uh, that, uh, with their... Uh, harmonies that so delighted the ear. Edward Winslow, one of the chief pilgrims, described the farewell scene like this. We refreshed ourselves after our tears with the singing of psalms, making joyful melody in our hearts as well as with the voice, there being many in the congregation very expert in music, and indeed it was the sweetest melody that mine ears have ever heard. Then the next morning, the ship having been loaded, the little group gathered on the dock to leave. Now it was literally time to say goodbye. And Pastor Robinson knelt on the dock along with the others to ask God's blessing on their journey. Isn't it interesting that our nation was founded by brave believers on their knees when they left and they dropped to their knees on the ship's deck when it had arrived in this country on that cold November 11, 1620 at Cape Cod? Our nation was literally based and built by people on their knees, praying to God. Governor Bradford described their arrival in these words, having found a good haven and being brought safely in sight of land, they fell upon their knees and blessed the God of heaven who had brought them over the vast and furious ocean and delivered them from all the perils and miseries of it. But before going ashore so that everything would be done decently and in order, they would first write out the birth certificate for this nation called the Mayflower Compact, 
which begins with these words, In the name of God, Amen. I'm not even sure you can read that sentence in some schools today. It might cause um, some people to get a little nervous. But what a heritage we have. What a heritage that's been handed down to us by these uh, brave people. Uh, And yet now we seem to despise it even as Esau despised his birthright. And what a price we are paying. Right and wrong are no longer categories that can be used. Everything is relative. And uh, there is no such thing as objective truth. And you don't dare have God to be as a standard or scripture be as a standard. And yet it was because they were saturated with the scriptures that, that gave the pilgrims uh, this, this faith which uh, held them up and, and uh, permitted them to face all of the trials and, and testings that they went through. Now, the Pilgrim Charter called them for landing in northern Virginia. Of course, the king who issued the charter forgot to ask the American Indians if they had any objections to someone giving away their land that uh, didn't own it. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the, the land, where they landed uh, was really one of the first miracles to take place. Instead of landing in northern Virginia, they, they landed in what would now be called northern Massachusetts. And, of course, Massachusetts, as you must know, is an Indian name uh, at Cape Cod. Uh, they would settle then further, a little further south in Plymouth, about 20 miles south now of present Boston. The, the pilgrims had a little skirmish with the Indians while exploring the coastline, but none was hurt. And then, wonder of wonders, the scouting party, because the main body of pilgrims stayed on the Mayflower, some of them for the whole winter, the scouting party found that the soil was very rich and fertile where they had landed. And they went up a gentle slope, and there, to uh, their amazement, a wonder of wonder, they found not one but four spring-fed creeks, which they said was the sweetest water they had ever tasted, which helped them to forget that they had run out of their favorite beverage, beer, because the pilgrims drank a lot of beer because uh, water in England was poor, and most Englishmen uh, uh, drank beer. Then they found a good 20 acres of land cleared, and ready to plant, but it looked as if no planting had been done on it for several years. And they, how could that happen? Why would that be? Later, they would find out they had actually settled on land that had long been occupied by the Puktex Indians, a large, hostile tribe that killed every white person that came their way and that they could catch. But just four years before the pilgrims arrived, a mysterious plague had broken out among the tribe, killing every man, woman, and child. As a result, no other tribe would come near the place. So, the land where the pilgrims settled literally belonged to no one. No one would come near it. Didn't want to have anything to do with it. And once again, of course, the pilgrims saw the hand of God in all of this. The miracles continued to add up. God even sent out a welcome wagon in the form of a lone, tall Indian wearing a leather loincloth who walked up to the common house and in a deep, resonant voice says, Welcome! The Indian Samoset. He had learned his English from various English fishing captains. 
And Samoset then filled the pilgrims in on their Indian neighbors. And he was the one who told them about the plague and what had happened at the spot where they were. And then a couple of days later, he returned with another Indian, Squanto, who of all things was from that fierce tribe, the, the, uh, the uh, Patuxet, who had been wiped out. And Bradford describes Guanto as a special instrument sent by God for their good beyond their expectation. Miracle number two. Squanto, as he has an interesting background, he had been captured and taken to England where he spent nine years. Then <clears throat> Captain John Smith, of course, he was with the uh, Jamestown group who settled in 1606, but Jamestown really did not never get out of the starting blocks in one sense. Uh, he, uh, uh, when, when Captain John Smith came back, he brought Squanto back with him on the ship. But when they landed, the ship's captain, instead of releasing Squanto, scooped up some more Indians, took them down to Spain, and sold them for slaves. Squanto and a few others were bought by some Catholic friars and who introduced him to the Christian faith. Then he managed to get back to England by attaching himself to an English gentleman, I guess becoming his slave, or <clears throat> valet, or what do you want to call him, <clears throat> where he lived in England once again before embarking again for New England in 1619, stepping ashore at Plymouth Rock six months before the pilgrims arrived, only to find, of course, the desolate area littered with skulls and bones of his people. And uh, in despair, Squanto wandered into a nearby Indian camp under the command of Chief Massiot, where he met Samoset, and it was Samoset who later would tell Squanto about the white settlement on his old homestead. Now Squanto had found his reason for living. He practically adopted the pilgrims. Uh, the pilgrims were floundering around in an, a hostile environment about which they knew nothing. They were not frontiersmen. They were city folk from, from Holland and England. And the very next day, Squanto went out and returned with two handfuls of eels, which the hungry pilgrims found to be fat and sweet. And he showed them how to catch the eels by squashing them out of the mud with their bare feet. He taught them how to stalk deer and how to find the best berries. And uh, he taught them how to uh, discern which herbs could be eaten and which herbs could be used for medicine. But best of all, he taught them how to plant corn placing four or five kernels into the ground and then putting three fish with their heads pointed inward uh, to be used as fertilized. You had to uh, guard the uh, fish for a, a few weeks. Uh, our animals would eat them, but, but then when they, they rotted, then nothing wanted to come near the fish, of course. But without corn, it is doubtful if the pilgrims could have survived. Squanto was truly a godsend. And this is hard to believe, my dear loving Christian friends, but... It was a congregation of Christian believers that the Mayflower had actually transported to New England. It was a congregation. It was a church with an elder, and the pastor stayed behind, but uh, the elder became, became also the pastor and the preacher. And like the kernels of the corn that they would plant in the ground, they would be the spiritual seed corn of this nation. The Mayflower had returned to England in the spring. They were now alone. The Mayflower had been kind of a security blanket for the pilgrims during the winter. But they had heard that passage 
of scripture from Isaiah 41, 8, 10, read in the uh, meeting house and the uh, in the blockhouse where they also had uh, their guns and and uh, weapons to defend themselves. And from Isaiah 41, 8, 10, reads, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners. And here's where the this passage had such a, a special meaning to them. Saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. My, how that, what that must have meant to them as they sat there in that uh, uh, blockhouse reading, uh, hearing that read. Now, the summer of 1621, after a long winter of desolation and death, as you all know, 50% of that little group was wiped out. But the wildflowers were in bloom, and it was a beautiful summer. New dwellings were going up. Trade with the Indians was going on. Incidentally, the, uh, the uh, pilgrims signed a peace treaty with the Indians, which lasted 50 years, perhaps the longest of any peace treaty. Jamestown... They were killing Indians all the time. They were just fighting Indians all the time, all the time. Never had a peace treaty that would last. But the Pilgrim's Peace Treaty lasted for 50 years. And uh, the fall's harvest provided more than enough corn to see them through the second winter. And the Pilgrims were always a Thanksgiving people. Uprooted from their homes in England and Holland, strangers in a strange, uncivilized land, they never, ever lost heart or became bitter despite their uh, losses and uh, setbacks, their hearts brimming with gratitude to God for his grace and watchful care, they decide to have a public Thanksgiving. And Governor Bradford set the date for the first Thanksgiving in this country in October, not November, but in October. And Chief Massoy showed up a day early with 90 Indians. And the pilgrims surely thought that to feed that kind of an army would wipe out all of their food for the winter. But the Indians did not come, uh, arrive empty-handed. They brought with them five dressed deer and twelve fat wild turkeys. The Indians also showed the pilgrim women how to make hoe cakes and a delicious pudding out of cornmeal and maple syrup. The pilgrims provided vegetables from their gardens, carrots, onions, turnips, parsnips, cucumbers, radishes, beets, and cabbages, and they introduced the Indians to such delicacies as blueberry and apple and cherry pie. All of this was washed down with sweet wine from the wild grapes they harvested. Can't you imagine how their hearts were flooded with emotion and their mind with memories as they bowed their heads over that table and dear elder William Brewster led them in prayer? He surely must have given thanks that their lives had been spared and for the lives of their loved ones who had gone on to heaven, for their friendship with the Indians, and for providing all their needs. In fact, they enjoyed this festival with the Indians so much that they extended it for three days. What better way to get a view on this than to read again the words of Bradford, his paraphrase of Psalm 107. Ought not the children of their fathers rightly to say, Our fathers were Englishmen who came over the great ocean and were ready to perish in this wilderness. But they cried unto the Lord, and he heard their voice, and looked on their adversity. 
Let them therefore praise the Lord, because he is good, and his mercies endure forever. Yea, let them that have been redeemed of the Lord show how he hath delivered them from the land of the oppressor. When they wandered forth in the and to the desert wilderness out of the way, and found no city to dwell in, both hungry and thirsty, their soul was overwhelmed in them. Let them confess before the Lord his loving kindness and his wonderful works before the sons of men. And I just want to close here with a, with a letter that Pastor Robinson wrote to the pilgrims, uh, for the pilgrims, just as they were preparing to depart uh, for New England. Uh, and he made five major points pertaining both to church and civil government in his letter that I believe worthy of our reviewing. And my, if, if we were, were to go back to, to these five points, what a different nation we would be now uh, by, by um, in effect, uh, taking up where, where the pilgrims left off. He wrote, first, we ought daily to renew our repentance with our God especially for our sins known and generally for our trespasses unknown. We ought daily to renew our repentance with our God. As I recall, when our brother Josh was here this summer, he was always reminding us we ought to be repenting of our sins and, uh, daily. Um, and, uh, and for our trespasses unknown. Now, after this heavenly peace with God and our own country, are to provide for peace with all men, so far as it lieth, especially with our associates. And for that we must be watchful, and we ourselves neither give nor easily take offense. Neither give nor easily take offense. That's a good operating principle for a church, beloved. Neither give offense nor, nor take offense. We rub each other the wrong way sometimes. That can't be helped. Uh, but uh, we should not easily take offense. Third point. And if taking offense carelessly or, or easily at men's doings should be so carefully avoided, how much more is it to be heeded lest we take offense at God himself, which we do so often as we murmur at his providence, providence in our crosses or bear impatiently such affliction as he pleases to visit upon us. Even murmuring, taking offense against God because of what... Uh, some of the crosses that he asks us to bear are some of the affliction that, as he said, he pleases to visit upon us. We are to rejoice in these times of testing and trial because uh, the Lord does chasten those that he loves. A fourth thing is carefully to be provided for, to wit, that with your employments, which will be common to all, you join affections truly bent upon the general good, avoiding as a deadly plague of your comfort all retiredness of mind for selfish advantage. Now, translated, that means, look, you're going to be living in a commune, and you'll have all things in common, so don't be selfish and take advantage. The pilgrims had a form of Christian communism. Uh, but it didn't work out very well. And after a few years, uh, Governor Bradford decided every family should work their own plot of land. And he said it was amazing how much more they produced when they reverted to Christian capitalism, I guess you could call it. Uh, uh, when uh, each one had his own plot and, had, uh, and went out and did it, rather than everybody going out in one field and then divvying up, it just doesn't seem to work, even among small groups of believers. Lastly, where you are to become a body politic, administering among yourselves civil government, and are furnished with persons of no special eminence above the rest, 
from whom you will elect some to the office of government, yield to them all due honor and obedience in their lawful administrations, because you are at present to have to choose for your governor as you yourself shall choose. For you are at present to have only those for your governor as you yourself shall choose. You can only appreciate how radical this is uh, about choosing your own governors if you think that that boat was only a few feet away from a land where a king reigned by what he thought was divine right and he could do anything he wanted to his subjects even to the point of chasing them out or executing them but here we're being told that this little group he says in effect says, let's face it they're not there are no lords or, uh, or dukes or whatever among you. You're not a bunch of aristocrats. Uh, no, no one of special eminence. Um, but uh, what is it Paul says? There's not many among you who are, what, great or what, what is it? Noble. Uh, uh, and, and noble, I think he's meaning uh, more like a caste of, of, of nobles. Uh, I hope there were some noble people among them. Um, but he says, yield due honor to all of those because you're just, you're just electing people from among your own little group or who have no special, who have no special, they've never held an office like this. And keep in mind that this idea of electing your own officers and your own people was written 155 years before Thomas Jefferson ever got around to saying this is the way we should, uh, this is what we should have. And, uh, and, and not only Thomas Jefferson, but those who wrote the Declaration of Independence and and the Constitution. And so, I hope as we stand here this morning and as we celebrate Thanksgiving in 1998, that we will look back uh, to our, and, and give thanks for our, our Pilgrim Fathers and for what they did and what they have given us to confess our sins for how much of it we have wasted to ask God that he would once again work a work in our midst and in our dear country uh, and in our own lives uh, that uh, we might put him first that everything in our life uh, the, the pilgrims uh, just didn't worship God on, on, on Sunday it was a seven day a week affair with them everything that they did uh, their, their labor in the field was uh, an act of worship and, it's, and our and our Jobs should when we go into to our jobs uh, should be uh, an act of worship. That this that God has called us to that job. That's a calling we should take seriously. And then we can say with the psalmist, and one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 16, our boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. Surely we have a delightful inheritance, and uh, that we do, both as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and as uh, descendants of those brave men and women who uh, came in, came here in uh, 1620 and uh, really a church who started it all you might say from where we are now God bless you let's pray oh father we have so much to be thankful for today you are indeed a merciful and gracious and generous God and indeed you have uh, blessed America Father, we thank you that uh, we live in a country where we have freedoms and uh, 
Lord, even though there would be some who would uh, want to restrict those kind of freedoms, especially which um, involve uh, our faith, uh, we thank you that um, uh, we still are in a land where we can speak and and uh, and preach and, and share uh, the gospel with anyone uh, that we come in contact with. And uh, so we just uh, pray that uh, uh, through this little... Uh, time together here in a, in a retrospective of what uh, has gone on before us, of uh, our, our dear uh, forefathers who came over here, uh, believing that they had really been entered into a covenant with God and had been called to a mission. And Father, we pray that uh, we might just look to you and that we know that uh, you've given each of us a mission. And uh, it uh, may not seem like a very great mission, but it's important to you. And we pray that we might be faithful. So we ask your blessing upon each one here, on uh, each family represented, and uh, may uh, all enjoy a a great time together as family as they uh, meet around the table and uh, and just um, fellowship and and eat together and... and, uh, And as a family, uh, rejoice together and give thanks to you for what you have done. So dismiss us now with thy blessing and uh, take us to our our places where we would be going uh, to be with those whom we love. We thank you then for this day. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray all of this. Amen.